we're all called to a life of faith. But the life of faith begins with a call. It begins with a call. But when people hear the phrase, a life of faith, they've got some different reactions to it. Some people romanticize it. Like, only say positive things. Don't say anything negative. And they feel that if you're positive about everything, that's what the life of faith means. You, you never see problems. You only see roses, not the thorns. You are so close to sinless perfection. You don't make mistakes. Everything, you know, you're just so perfect. And, you know, from my example, you know that's not true. You never have a doubt. You know, God's always going to come through. You never have perplexities about God's plan. Like, why did I have to turn here? No, 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 no. Others think that a life of faith means immediate alleviation of all trials or avoidance. Yeah, I love it because some of you are laughing because you're like, I know that's not true. But that's what some people think. It means that, oh, immediately there's, things should happen. It means that avoidance or an answer to all your ailments. You know why you've gone through everything and what God's purposes are. Or alleviation of all your problems. In other words, they think the life of faith means a trouble-free, trial-free, tragedy-free life. And, and there's no such thing on earth. <laughs> no such thing on earth. Now, the other extreme are those who walk in faith or think that a life of faith means obedience without discussion. Like we never talk to God about anything. You know, we just like, whatever, Lord, whatever, Lord, whatever. Like we never say, what do, what's going on here? What are you doing? They think it's questions without answers, sacrifice without reward, all about deprivation and desolation and self-denial. But that's not right. None of those extremes is right. And I don't know about you, but I'm one of those show me type of people. You can be telling me everything. I'm like, no, no, no. Show me. Show me. What, what does this look like? Give me a picture. When I get instructions, I read them, but I like the diagrams. I love the diagrams or the pictures. Okay, so we're talking about that part. Or, you know, I like the pictures on the front of the box where you go, okay, this is what it looks like. And I see that's there. Puzzles. Have you ever tried to put a puzzle together without the picture on the front of the box? It's like, can you please tell me what this is going to look like when I finish? I love pictures. And I love videos. Uh, I love YouTube. I love that it tells me how to clean out my coffee maker. I love it. I've watched it like five times because I forget every time. Like, wait, what do I do again with this coffee maker? No, it's on YouTube. Somebody's making a lot of money on that one because now they've got advertisements. So I know. I know that they've gotten an audience. Or how to get rid of fruit flies, which I've tried every video, and so far it's not working. You wouldn't believe how many vinegar traps I have in my kitchen right now, or zappets. I got the zappets. You know, Brian's like, okay, maybe if we turn out all the lights. So zappet is the only light those fruit flies can see. I don't know. We've got some fruit flies that, like, you're not fooling me. I'm not going into that vinegar with the soap. <laughs> I don't know. I keep saying, Lord, the Israelites did not get the curses of the Egyptians. And I know flies were part of that curse. Gnats, will you get rid of them? I just keep, you know, please, Lord. But Abram 
who becomes Abraham. He's our how-to. He's our YouTube video on the life of faith. In the New Testament, Paul holds up Abraham again and again in um, Romans and in Galatians. And then he's held up again in Hebrews as a man of faith. As one to emulate if you want to live a life of faith. Through the events of Abraham's life, we get to watch a life of faith in motion. From the call to the fulfillment. And what we see is that the walk of faith begins with a call. It begins with a call. Remember Peter, James, John? Philip, Nathaniel, how did their life of faith with Jesus begin? It began with Jesus calling, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And that life of faith for those disciples did not start until they answered, till they followed that call. So the life of faith hinges on whether we answer that first call. If the call of God is not answered, there will be no walk of faith. If the voice is ignored, neglected, refused, then the life of faith is never initiated. It can never run, never travel, and never can reach its God-ordained purposes, blessings, or destination. Have you ever had the phone ring and you look at the person on the phone and you're like, should I answer it or should I not? You know, it's Brian. What is he going to require of me? What is he going to say he wants for dinner? Because I already started dinner. Or who is he going to bring home for dinner? You know, you're like, do I answer it or do I? Or I have those people like, that's a four-hour conversation right there. I love them, but that's a four-hour conversation. That's a no-way-off-the-phone conversation. I have a certain relative. I love him. I love him. But you answer that phone. And there's there's no guarantee you'll get to go to bed that night. (laughs) But it begins by answering the call of God. And I'll tell you, you're looking at that God. That's a lifetime call. That's going to be like forever till death brings us together, really. And I see his face. This This is the call that is waiting to be answered. We're told in Genesis 12, 1, the Lord had said to Abram. I, I, I thought about that, had said. So it's, it's this hanging call, so to speak. It's been there. How did it come? Was it this deep impression that he kept feeling this impression? God wants me. God wants me. And, and he felt this overwhelming word of God coming to him. Had it come over and over again? Had it come earlier, but he waited? And then it came again? But he doesn't answer it till he's 75 years old. I think of Moses in Exodus 3. Verse 3, there's a burning bush. And one day Moses says, you know what? I'm going to turn aside now and see what this burning bush is all about. How many times had Noah... Noah had an ark. How many times did Moses walk past that burning bush? How many times? Until one day he turned aside 
And it was when he turned aside that he heard the call of God. It was when he turned aside that he heard his name being called by God. And it was then that he realized that God had a destiny, a purpose, and a power for him. Samuel, as a little boy, is, is in his bed. And he hears a voice saying, Samuel, Samuel. And he runs to the old prophet Eli and he says, yes, yes, you called me. Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Samuel goes back. He lays down. He hears, Samuel, Samuel. He gets up. He goes back to Eli. You did call me. It was so clear I heard my name. But this time the old prophet perceives and he says, you know what? Let's see if that's the Lord. Go back to the same place you were. Lie down. And if it comes to you again, say, yes, Lord. Your servant hears. Samuel did that. He went right back to where he was. He lay down and the voice came and said, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, yes, Lord. Your servant hears. Oh, that's the response. That's the response God wants. This morning, we're going to be talking about the call to faith. The call that comes first to the life of faith. And we're going to see three things about the life, the call to the life of faith. One, we're going to see the cost or requirements to the life, to the call. Next, we're going to see the challenges. And thirdly, we're going to see the rewards. And I'm going to do it a little differently. We're going to go 12, 13, 14, 12, 13, 14, 12, 13, 14. So I'm going to be taking you through each of the chapters with each of the properties of the call. So first of all, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God speaks and he says to Abraham, get out of your country from your kindred and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So first we see the cost. The cost. Get out from your country. Now, we don't realize today how costly this was. But God was calling him to leave all security. Abram had dwelt in houses. And now he's going to exchange a house for a tent. Yeah, this is worse than exchanging your house for a mobile home or a motor home. This means a tent. Instead of being, you know, insulated by stones and mortar and brick, you're going to have just a wall of skin between you and the atmosphere. It, it's, you're no longer going to be isolated and insulated from the insects and the critters. You're going to be close to nature. Can you tell I don't like camping? Is it showing? He's going to leave his native language to a place that will speak a different dialect. And he's going to leave familiarity. You know, he knows where the roads go. He knows the fastest way from Ur to Haran. And he's going to leave all that. And he's not going to know the road system. He's not going to know the grid. 
He's not going to know the topography. But it also means travel. It, it means packing. And it, the travel is not by car. It's not by plane. It's not by boat. It means by foot with tents and animals and pots and pans and other assorted necessities of camping. Camping. Some of you will be like, I love camping. More power to you. You know, opposites attract. Who knows? It means a new identity. Abram had been an Aramean. An Aramean. That had been his identity. That had been his people. Um, An Aramean would be like a modern um, Chaldean Iraqi. Today it's not much different. You know, you're, you're identified by the state you live in. Oh, I'm a Californian. I remember when my daughter was engaged and everybody would say, my eldest daughter, they say, "Uh, what's her husband? Where's he from? I said, oh, he's a Floridian. And they literally said, what country is that? (laughs) That's what happens when you live in England. It's Florida. He was from Florida. But we identify often with the place we were born or the people we live with. When I was in Jordan, I remember one of our servers came up and he said, oh, I'm from the clan of, you know, Abu Dhabi. And we are 150,000 strong. And in the Middle East, there's a very strong sense of identification with your family. That is your name. That is your reputation. And you don't want to do anything to shame or dishonor your tribe and, you know, your father's house. So God says, I want you to leave your kindred and your father's house. This was leaving the security of family. As we said, it was identity. But it was also your army. It was your protection. You know, you, you hurt me, you're going to have to deal with my brothers and my cousins and my second cousins and my third cousins. You're gonna, you're, there's an army behind me. And now Abram is going out alone alone. And not only is he going out alone, he's going out at 75 with Sarah and his nephew. I mean, that's vulnerability. It meant leaving your inheritance, which would have been your income, your investments, your social security of those days. It meant leaving those you felt responsible for. Like, you Abram had already lost a brother. He should be taking care of his father. And then it meant going to unknown, to a land I will show you. It meant Abram was leaving for a destiny he didn't know. For a destiny he didn't know. God would be his GPS. And he had no guidebooks telling him how to pack, what to expect, the weather or the climate or the topography. Before we ever went any place. My mother would buy a book about that place. In fact, the first time we went to Hawaii, she did that book and said, Chuck, there's a place that's supposed to have the best guava cake in the world. And my mom, like my daughter, they, they do those guidebooks to find bakeries. It's just who they are. 
I'm just along for the ride. I can't help it if they take me to a bakery. In chapter 13, we realize that the cost meant separation. Abram had to separate from his nephew Lot. Lot probably hoped to be Abram's heir, but now he doesn't need Abram because he's got his own money. So he separates from Abram. Abram probably thought that Lot would get everything. He was very close to his nephew. His nephew was willing to go with him when he answered the call of God. But now it means a change of plan, a change of lifestyle. And that will be the cost of the call. It will require separations and changes of plan and changes of even lifestyle. It meant that Abram would miss his nephew's company, his nephew's support, and his nephew's fellowship. In chapter 13, we also see that the call means letting God choose your inheritance for you, rather than like Lot, who chose for himself, verse 11, chapter 13, the plain of Jordan. Abram didn't get the first choice. He got the second choice, cost. Chapter 14, we realize that the call will mean driving out the oppressors, driving out the possessors. Abram and his 318 trained servants were called to go against an aggressive army of four kings. So the call of God is not without cost. I was watching an interview with Rosario Butterfield, and she used to be uh, professor at Syracuse University in New York, and she was um, she had tenure. She had just a lot of um, clout at this college, and she taught on feminism, and that was her specialty. And she owned a home with her lesbian partner, and she would write just these snarky um, articles for the newspaper and different papers on the church and against Christians. And she would get different responses. And she said she had two piles, the mean pile and the supportive pile. And she just would place it. And then she got a letter from a pastor and she didn't know what pile to put it in because it wasn't mean and it wasn't supportive. It was neither. It was a challenge. Would you just be willing to talk? Um, your ideas are well thought out, but I think that there's more conversation and discussion that should take place. So she decided to take this pastor up on it, sit on her desk for a while, and she called him up. He invited her to dinner at his house with his wife and family. And an improbable friendship developed, and she would just once a week go over with her partner, and they would eat with this pastor. And he would talk about the word of God and he would just have conversations with them and he would listen. And he would challenge her in the most loving, gracious way. And then one week he challenged her to come to church. And she talked about sitting outside of her car, parking as far away from the church as she could, but still having it in sight, not in the church parking lot. And about the whole debate and arguing with herself if she should go in. And finally, she went into the church, and she just thought there was going to be something insulting, something that she could get angry about and say, see, I knew it. 
but there was nothing. And all the congregants were so kind and so loving to her. So she went the next week, and she went the next week. And she became convinced that Jesus was real, and he was the Son of God. She knew it. But she also recognized that there would be a cost. She knew that this would cost her her career. She knew it because she couldn't teach the things she was teaching. She knew it would cost her her lover. And she felt like this was the love of her life. And she knew it would cost this relationship. Thirdly, she knew it would cost her possessions because they owned everything together. But she felt the call of God so strongly. And she said that she got angry. Angry that it would cost her something. That it wasn't just free, that it was going to cost her. And and she looked at the people at church. She said, they didn't have to pay anything to be here. But I'm going to have to pay everything. So after church, she went up and she said, what did it cost you to walk with Jesus? To a man. And he said, oh, it cost me my marriage. She's like, oh, I'm so sorry. She walked to somebody else. What did it cost you to be here? And they said, oh, it cost me my job. They went to somebody else. What did it cost you? It cost me my family. My parents wouldn't have anything to do with me. What did it cost you? Oh, it cost my reputation. There is a cost. Jesus said there'd be a cost. He said nobody goes to war, but they first sit down and they see, do I have enough money to supply my soldiers, to buy the weapons I need? Nobody builds a house, but they don't sit down and they count the cost, how much it's going to be. There is a cost to following Jesus. It will mean leaving. It will entail discomfort. It will require a new lifestyle. It will mean that your security will be in him rather than in the things of this earth. It will mean a new language, a new way of talking. You might say things like, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Glory. And just shock every neighbor you have. It will mean a new identity. There will be an emotional cost, a physical cost, perhaps a financial cost, a social cost, cost of reputation. Not only that, but there's challenges to this call. In chapter 12, Abram is to claim the land of Canaan to to make altars in the land claimed by Baal. Do you realize that? He's going to go in and he is going to claim that land. And if you look at the places where he built the altar, you'll see that he was making a claim on the borders of Israel. And he's going in and he's building altars to God in the land of Baal. The whole land, the Canaanites, they all worship Baal. He was the God of agriculture. They, they felt like if they didn't worship him, there'd be bad crops. And they credited Baal with the rain and with the produce. So here is Abram. That's costly to go into a land where Baal is, is revered and say, I claim this for the God most high above all the earth, the real God, the true God. 
He builds an altar at Bethel and Ai, wherever he camps. It's an incredibly audacious act to build an altar for God in these places. Notice that Abram does not claim the land for himself or his descendants. God said I could have it, I'll claim it. No, he claims it for God. He brings the land his feet touch under the authority of God Most High. That's what he does. He doesn't claim it for himself, but for God. When he is in the land, a famine comes. Chapter 12. And this famine is is so severe. Here is a challenge to the life of faith. Even in the Lord's will, even doing exactly what God says, Abram feels a shortage of food. We think, wait, 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 wait. If I'm answering the call of God, how can I feel hungry? I, I shouldn't suffer want. And yet he senses this. There, there's no food and he's a stranger. He's a nomad. So he goes to Egypt. And in Egypt, another challenge awaits him. And the challenge is... That his wife is so beautiful. I wish Brian had that challenge. (laughs) I don't know what facial cream she was using. Or oils. You know, maybe it's olive oil. I've started doing more olive oil. Incorporating it in my diet. Just because of Sarah. But she's so beautiful. She's somewhere um, in her late 60s, 70s. She's so beautiful that Abram turns to her and says, Look, Sarah, do me a favor. Tell people you're my sister because I'm the one with the promises. I got to preserve my life. That's exactly what he says. Here's Abram and he believes the promises of God. You know what he doesn't believe? That they include Sarah. He thinks, oh, these are my promises and I got to help God out. And Sarah, you can sacrifice too for the promises of God to me. To me. So there are challenges. Faith is not without faltering. It does not require, it does not require perfection. Aren't you relieved? You know, God didn't say, all right, that's it. Call's coming right back to me. You gave your wife away. (laughs) What are you doing? You're in Egypt. You're giving your wife away. I turned my back for one second. This is what you do? No. And it doesn't require that we are always brave and never have a fear. In fact, what it does is it requires, it challenges us to bring every fear to God. Just bring your fears to God. Abram is afraid for his life, so he stretches the truth. And he resigns Sarah, the wife of covenant, as we'll learn in a few weeks, to the harem of Pharaoh. He he's, he's actually doesn't realize that he's jeopardizing the promises of God. He's giving the other part of the promise away to the harem of Pharaoh. In chapter 13, we realize that the, the life of faith requires, um, challenges us by feuding. There's feuding. And, and we tend to think if we're, if we're answering the call of God, we're all going to get along so well. 
Everyone's going to like everybody else. But notice, it's not Lot and Abraham that are feuding. It's those under them that are feuding. It's the servants that are feuding with each other. At times, there are needful separations. Not all separations are bad. In fact, some are necessary for peace and good relations. Some are necessary. Sometimes it's necessary to put distance in the relationship. We see in chapter 13, one of the challenges is that Abram is coming to the land of promise that God has promised him. And because of this separation, he gets second choice in the land. That Lot chooses for himself the fertile Hula Plain, the best of the land, the best that he can see. And God calls Abram to walk the length and width of the land. Now, that might not sound like a challenge, but if you're almost 80, that's a lot of walking. That's a lot of moving. You know, I used to think, oh, you know, it's not that hard to bend down and pick something up and get back up. It is now. But there's a lot of pulling up camp, a lot of packing up, a lot of settling in again, and then pulling up stakes. In chapter 14, we have the challenge that includes war and fighting. Abram must deliver his nephew Lot, who took the first choice. He's got to now protect this nephew of his who has been kidnapped by these aggressive kings. And these kings have conquered the land. Wherever they've gone, they've conquered. They've won every battle. They're like four for four. And they've been oppressive, strong. They've been able to hold on to their power. And remember, these kings... They own the land. It is potentially lethal to go against these kings. Not only because of their might and their strength, but because they rule. They have ruled in this land. They can reconnoiter, regather, and there can be a reprisal. Abram is the foreigner. They are the native dwellers. They are the occupiers. And the possessors. First Abram claimed the land for Yahweh. Now he is going to drive out the armies and powers of the oppressors and the possessors. That's a challenge. Then after the victory, there is the challenge to resist the spoil or some of the spoils as the victor. You know, there's always that subtle temptation, but you earned it. You, you fought, you poor thing. You can do it. You deserve some. Like even just a little thing. I mean, think how many couldn't resist, like even Achan, who took the gold. But Abram says, I will not take from a thread to a sandal strap, from the thinnest to the thickest. I will not take anything. I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. 
Abram is saying, I want the testimony of God. I want only the testimony God can give me. I don't want the testimony that man can give me. You know, oh yes, we enriched Abram, or Abram is, you know, he, he's rich because he's a good fighter. He says, I don't want that reputation. I don't want that name. I don't want that enrichment. He resists. You know, I think of people who have said, I know I can't go to church anymore on Sundays, and I know my life has gotten so busy, and I can't fellowship like I used to, but once I make all the money at this new job, then I'll come back. Then I'll I'll be such a better Christian. I've just got to make, I think that's what Jesus is talking about when he says the deceitfulness of riches. Because, you know, who was it? It was Rockefeller when they asked him, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. It's never satisfying. So why? If the, if the call of God to a life of faith requires cost and, it requi- and has challenges, Why? Why, why do we want to answer the phone? We see the name. And we know it's going to mean cost and requirements. Why are we going to pick up the receiver and put it to our ear? Why? Because of the promises of God and the great rewards that outweigh all the cost and challenges. Remember, God says, I will make you a great nation God promises Abram when he has no children. Lot is gone. He promises him a heritage and a lineage. God says, I will bless you. God promises his divine favor, his divine gifts. God says, I will make your name great. Last week we studied what a name meant to that culture. And God promises to give Abram a name. Not from the name of his country or his family, but a greater name. A name that will have a greater reputation. A name that will have a greater identity. A name with a greater worth. A name that will be inscribed in the everlasting book of life. And that thousands upon thousands will read about and want to emulate. He says, I will make you a blessing. Don't you want to be a blessing? Don't you want to be like, come sit at our table and bless us? Don't, don't you, you know, want to be invited to people's houses? Because, oh, here comes the blessing. I want to be a blessing. When I was in Sunday school, it's probably because we used to sing, make me a blessing. But he says, Abram, I will make you a blessing. Wherever you go, you will bless others. They'll be glad you came. They'll be like, oh, wasn't it so glad to have Abram here? I will make you a blessing. And then he says, I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. God promises to bless the friends of Abraham and to defend him against his enemies. I will do what is necessary you know, for me, this is, this is such a word. I want to bless. I want to bless the saints of God. I want to be a blessing. Because when you bless those that God has blessed, 
you'll be blessed by God. I remember meeting Nancy Sylvester and Dave in England. And at the time they were living in a house that was about 400 square feet, <laughs> tiny home. But then it wasn't a blessing. But they were living there and they had left all, left a house, left security in Arizona uh, to be in Bradford, England, which wasn't the nicest part of England. They had sacrificed everything from their savings, everything to live there. And I remember just hearing their story and I thought, I want to bless these people. I, I, I know that God's hand is on them and I want to be, I want to bless them because maybe if I stand close enough, the shower of blessings will splash on me too. I want to bless Beth more because she's been a blessing to so many and she's blessed by God. I don't want to get a curse. You know, I just don't think it's, it's safe to curse anyone, is it? Because if you curse somebody that God has blessed, whoa. Wouldn't it be better to be a people that blesses everybody? Wouldn't it be better just to get in the practice of blessing others and bringing the blessing of Jesus to them? You know, if cursing can become habitual, can it? It just can. Like, ah, darn it, dang it. You know, it can just become our reaction to everything. We open, you know, the door slams. Ah, you know, rats. <laughs> you know, or we can't see out our window because it's, you know, the sun's shining in it. Rats. See, you know, you know every, our whole life can become about rats, <laughs> which are a blessing. Don't you want to be those who bless and not those who curse? Don't you want the blessings that are falling on others to be splashed on you? You know, Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What would you like? To be blessed. Me too. I want to be blessed. And if I want to be blessed, then I need to get in the habit of blessing others. I want to encourage others so they'll say, oh, there's Cheryl. Let's encourage her. Yes. I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And then he says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God's going to start again with one man and one barren woman. And he's going to create a lineage that will save the world. Oh, God starts his greatest work with small things. An old man and an old woman following the call of God will result in the savior of the world. Jesus, the Messiah, the blessing, the greatest blessing of the whole earth will come through the lineage of Abram. God protects Abram and Sarah even in Egypt. He preserves them through the famine. He enriches them through the Pharaoh of Egypt and he plagues Pharaoh's house in order to set Sarah free and protect Abram. In chapter 13, back in Canaan, after Lot leaves, God speaks to Abram 
and says in Genesis 13, 14 through 17, lift your eyes now. Lift your eyes now. Perhaps Abram was looking down. Perhaps he was so sad over the separation, but God says, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, northward, southward, eastward, westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could count the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. God's promises. But I also love the comfort and the renewal of the promises of God at emotionally wrenching times. Have you ever had that? You're just gutted. You're thinking, I, Lord, this is, this is the one that's going to take me out. <laughs> Ever feel like, this is the one that's going to take me out. I used to surf, if you can call it that. And I remember those waves, sometimes I'd be like, this is the one that's going to take me out. I love you, Lord. I'll see you soon. This is the one. This is the wall of water that's just going to kill me. This is the one. And then the promise of God. It comes and it reminds you, this is not the end. This is not the end. This is just the cross. This is just the valley. This is just the venue. There is more. I love how we read in these chapters that God calls, God appears, God speaks, and then God encounters. Don't you love that? It begins with God speaking, calling Abraham. Then we have him appearing to him. And in chapter 12, just a little bit later, chapter 13, we have him speaking. But God also brings victory. How is it that Abram, with 318 servants, could defeat, pursue, and recover all the goods? I mean, think about it. It's one thing if he just defeated or drove them back. But he defeats, he pursues, and he recovers. You know, it's like David, who said he took that lion by the beard, and he took the lamb right out of the lion's mouth. That's what we're talking about, recovery. He not only chased the enemy and, and, and won the battle, but he recovered all that the enemy took and more. It can only be explained by the hand of the Lord on Abram, God did it as he promised Abram, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those that curse you. He blessed Abram. The greatest reward, though, is the encounter with Melchizedek. Again, God calls, God appears, God speaks, but God encounters. God encounters. God meets us. Isn't that incredible that we have a God that meets us? And look how God meets him. He's called Melchizedek, and the name means king of righteousness. His kingdom is a kingdom of peace, and he is a priest. The only other person in scripture where the office of king and priest and prophet meet is in Jesus Christ. And we're told in Psalm 110 
that the Messiah would be after the priesthood of Melchizedek. In other words, he would be king, priest, and prophet. Moses introduced him as the prophet. Melchizedek introduces him as the priest. And David introduces him as the king. The Messiah is priest, he is king, and he is prophet. He comes to Abram with wine and bread, covenant foods. The great king of peace and righteousness has come to Abram with covenant foods from God to assure him that he does not need to fear reprisal. He doesn't need to fear the oppressors and the kings coming back. God has dealt with them. And Abram is in a covenant with the king of peace. The great king. He reminds Abram that God has delivered his enemies into his hands. And that God is blessed by the possessor of heaven and earth. By the greatest blesser. By the greatest power, by the greatest person, Abram is already blessed. And no earthly king can undo or ruin that blessing. Abram ties one-tenth of all the spoil to Melchizedek. Remember Abram, the rebel in the land of Baal. And yet here he receives bread and wine, covenant food. And he's blessed and receives blessing. And then he gives a blessing, a tithe of all the spoils. The encounter with Melchizedek is wondrous. It is comforting. It is encouraging. It is a blessing. It is revelational. You see, when we answer the call, there is nothing, nothing. There is nothing like hearing the Lord speak to impress something on your heart. There is, there is nothing like having God appear to you, maybe in a dream or sometimes in a, in a person who is speaking to you the word of God and you see Jesus in them. You see Jesus in them. Having God speak to you, bring a scripture to mind or say, look, I'm with you, I've got this, giving you a promise. But then encountering Jesus, those times of deep prayer, when you just feel like Jesus enters the room, in Luke 24, when those disciples, Cleopas and the other, are so downcast, they, they just think that life is all over. Jesus has been violently, deceptively taken and crucified publicly, where everyone knows he's dead, then embalmed and placed in a tomb. And it was done by the religious leaders by those who are supposed to be leading the nation to God. They've taken the greatest man that ever walked in Israel, who healed everyone who came to him, who only spoke truth, who showed so much love and compassion for the multitudes, who fed the people who calmed storms, who could cast demons out, the only one who could ever raise the dead. They, with their wicked, cunning hands, have publicly put him to death. And they're so dismayed. They're so downcast. And then women, you know, women are. They came and they told these disciples that they went to the tomb. They met angels, women. 
Women with their hallucinations, women with their drama, met angels, and the angel said, Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. And, and they, they said, they were talking, what do we do with these things? You, could, these women, could these women actually be telling the truth? Could this really have happened? It's so unbelievable. And then Jesus joins them. And he walks alongside of them. He says, what, what are you talking about? And they're like, what? You have a stranger. Don't you know the things? And I think they just kept their heads down. Don't you know the things that have been happening in Israel? Jesus, a man mighty in power. And miracles. It was, it was this Jesus. We thought, we thought he was the Messiah. But then our religious leaders took him. And they condemned him to death and they crucified him. And then these women, they went to the tomb and they said, he's risen and they saw angels, you know. And Jesus says to them, oh, foolish and slow of heart. Don't you believe what the prophets and the word of God has said? And then we're told beginning, beginning at Moses or the book of Genesis, he goes through all the prophets is concerning himself proving that the Messiah had to suffer and then rise again. And they're listening. They're so intent on listening. I think they're looking at the road, just trying to take it all in. And then he says, well, it was nice talking with you. And they said, no, please stay a little longer. Just eat dinner with us. And they sit at the table and they're looking down. And when he receives the bread, I think they looked up to see the bread. And then they're like, Jesus? As he breaks the bread and he disappears. And then they walked to Emmaus, but they ran to Jerusalem. They couldn't wait to tell the disciples, Jesus is risen. He's risen indeed. And they said to each other as they're running, weren't our hearts burning? Did you have a burning heart? Yes, I had a burning heart too. Oh, when you encounter Jesus, that burning heart, nothing Nothing is like encountering the king of righteousness, the prince of peace. Nothing. And that is why the cost feels like nothing. That's why the challenges are just par for the course. Because I am in a covenant. I am in a covenant with the king of righteousness, the prince of peace the possessor of heaven and earth. I am my beloved's and he is mine. And it's not just that I get to encounter him, but it's that this great God, this great king, he wants to bless my life. He wants to do great things with me. I I remember we had never told our kids about Santa Claus. It wasn't that we thought Santa was bad. We just forgot about him. (laughs) We just never thought about Santa. He wasn't in our kind of our radar. And so we're, we're at the mall and my daughter, Kristen, my oldest, she sees all these little kids all lined up to see Santa. And she doesn't know who she is. And she's like, she wants to be where the kids are. So she, she wants to. So Brian and I look at each other each other she's four she might as well so we stand in line because we never thought about it before 
We didn't really have an uh, opinion. We didn't call him Satan Claus, nor did we, you know, call him, you know, um, Saint. Yeah, Nicholas. We just didn't do either. We're just like, oh, yeah, there he is. We never thought. So she's in line. And she goes up and they take a picture and she's like, and she comes off of him and she looks at us. She goes, that guy wants to buy me a present for Christmas. Like, is this, like, so good? I've never met him before. He wears red and fur. He's got a beard, but he wants to buy me a present. I'm all in. But, you know, this God, this God who is possessor of heaven and earth, this God who is the king of righteousness, he wants to give us a present. He wants to give us lots of presents he saves us so he might bring us into the blessing, give us a land, give us a lineage, give us a, a purpose. It doesn't just stop at the call. It doesn't stop at the cost. It doesn't stop at the challenges. They're just par for the course of getting into, of encountering and walking with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Faith is only activated when we step out in obedience to the call. And it will involve a cost, emotional, social, financial, all sorts. And it will be uncomfortable. There will be challenges to all the promises of God. It might be a move, it might be a famine, it might be a threat that is seen or a threat that is unseen but felt a threat that is spoken or unspoken. It might mean separations or loss or deficiency. It will definitely mean battles and pursuits. But there will be the exhilaration of hearing God calling you, of having God meet with you, of having God speak to you, of having God appear to you, of having God encounter you, of having God give you promises that he will fulfill. Of having God give you victories that he will bring. The life of faith begins with a call to action and it involves challenges and cost, but it comes with the greatest of all rewards. Abram's life is a YouTube video of this. God wants to make your life a YouTube video of faith. Isn't that cool? Wouldn't it be great if your daughter says, I want to live just like you? I want, I mean, my daughter will call me up and she'll like, Mom, I'm in like one of those things that you and dad have been through. And then she starts going on and tells me how much her life is like my life. I love it because she used to not want to be like me at all. And now she's like, we're so alike. In fact, this is how alike we are. Last time she visited, she came downstairs in the exact same shirt. I kid you not. Same shirt. And she looks at me like, no. I'm like, yes. Yes. <laughs> this is the shirt. I think I talked about this a couple weeks ago. This is the shirt. $9.99 online. Made well. Free shipping at the time. I mean, we even bought it at the same time. It arrived like the same date to her house and to mine. It was like, yes. 
welcome to my life. I mean, it's just, don't you want your kids to be able to say, I know God came through for you, so I believe he'll come through to me. Don't you want your kids to want your life, to say, that's the life I want. That's the marriage I want. That's the friendships I want. That's the church I want. I want the church that blesses. I want that church. I was talking to a friend this week. This is just a side note before we pray and dismiss. But I said to her, shouldn't the church be the place that blesses and doesn't curse? Shouldn't everyone on the out be wanting in? Instead of like, let's not be like Russia where everybody wants out and nobody wants in. God wants to make us the place of joy, of blessing, of forgiveness, of encounters with Melchizedek. So everybody wants in and nobody wants out. You're going to stand up right now. I am, there will be women up front if you need prayer. I am so excited. My honey, my honey arrives at LAX in just a little bit, and I'm going to go pick up my honey. And uh, I'm so excited. He'll be here on Sunday. He'll be preaching in the gym. If you haven't taken a peek into the sanctuary, peek, it's your sanctuary. You own it. It's yours. It's where Jesus encountered you and loves you, and it's yours. This is our church. This is our Father. This is our God, and we are in this together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have called us together to this wondrous life of faith. Lord, that we are the community. Lord, even as Abram had to do it alone until he realized Sarah was part of that call. Lord, we thank you that we get to walk alongside brothers and sisters. Lord, we pray that you would bring your glory so into these lives of faith. So into this church, Lord, that others on the out would say, I want in. I don't care what the cost is. I don't care what the challenges are. I want to hear from the King of Kings. I want to know the King of Kings. I want the King of Kings to appear to me. And I want encounter and have bread and wine with the King of Kings. Lord, Work in us that we might be that walking, living testimony of faith. And therefore bring a blessing to everyone we encounter. In Jesus' name, amen.